Welcome, everybody. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about this over these next six weeks. Uh, this is a topic that I have become very passionate about. Um, <clears throat> and I'm excited to uh, cover all facets, or not all, but many facets of sexuality. Um, the slides will more or less correspond to what's in your binder, so feel free to take notes as you go. Uh, this first one is about joining a life group. If anybody in here is not part of a life group, uh, highly recommend connecting to a life group because life group is where you can continue to work out all the stuff we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks. Uh, so there's a QR code there that will take you to Antioch's Find a Life Group page. Uh, so I encourage you to check that out if you're not already in a life group, if I haven't met you yet, which I think I know just about everybody in here, at least at a cursory level, if not uh, like Cheryl, who lived with our family. But um, here's my family. Uh, I've been married to Steph for 18 years this year, uh, this October, and we have four boys, Aiden, Paxton, Mason, and Hudson. Uh, I just came from coaching a third and fourth grade football team, so if I'm a bit disheveled, uh, if, I, if I don't smell the best, I was out on the sidelines running around. Uh, and had to towel off before coming in. But um, we've got our hands full, and this is also one reason why I'm passionate about this topic, raising four boys in this cultural climate. Um, we're just now getting into the teenage years. Aiden just turned 13 in May, and so uh, hitting puberty head on and uh, loving it, having a great time, uh, and new, uh, new enterprise for our family. Um, so we'll go six weeks with this course, and here's a general layout. With this being a small enough class, we can uh, kind of weave in and out of this as needed. If there are specific questions we need to linger a little bit longer on, I don't feel the pressure to cram through all of the content, uh, so we can tailor make it a little bit as we need to. But generally speaking, we'll talk about a biblical theory of sexuality tonight that'll kind of lay a foundation for talking about sexuality. Um, next week, we'll kind of contrast that with what's going on in culture and talk about how we kind of got to where we are. Ruben, there's a binder over there for you and a name tag. Uh, and make yourself at home. Um, and then we'll look at week three, uh, zero in on gender, because that is such a uh, kind of a hot-button topic in our culture today, a lot of confusion, uh, especially for the 40 and unders, and I would say for the 40 and overs, confusion, that there is confusion uh, around this topic. And then look at some of the distortions in week four, whether that be uh, just lust, pornography, masturbation, homosexuality. Uh, we'll look at transgenderism on that week three there. Uh, and then weeks five and six, we'll get more into some practical considerations around relationships, whether that's singleness, dating, marriage, um, divorce, remarriage. We won't, we won't deep dive those topics, but um, they dovetail into uh, a lot of what we'll talk about in the first four weeks. And then the last week will be super practical, talk about parenting, discipleship, the role of the church, do believers engage in politics, and those sorts of things around uh, issues of sexuality. All right. Sound good? So we're going to cover a gamut of topics. We can go deeper here than we can on a Sunday morning, but this still isn't like a two-year you know, seminary course or something. So we're not going to go as deep as we possibly could, uh, but we're going to go deeper than just scratching the surface. Um, we, I set up a, uh, a website that, where if you have anonymous questions that you'd like to ask because they're of a sensitive nature, then you can go to that website and type in that event code 
and post your questions. Um, so I won't be able to do it live um, like tonight, but I will look at these over the coming week and before each new class, if there, if you guys enter any questions there, uh, we'll prepare a way to talk about that uh, anonymously. Know that everybody can see the question. They just can't see who asked the question. That makes sense. Um, so that's available to you. We'll also do live Q&A. So if you don't mind it not being anonymous, we'll have an opportunity to do questions as well. Um, okay, so some resources, and these are in your slides, but just so you know where I'm getting some of my content. And if you want a deeper dive into any of these topics, uh, this ministry, Pure Desires Ministry, is a great starting point. Um, so they kind of touch all of the whether it's homosexuality or transgenderism or tips, you know, tools for marriage and so on, Pure Desires Ministry, Pornography Addictions, uh, is a great uh, resource. They have a ton of parental resources. And I just kind of did a screenshot from one of their, uh, or this is a PDF on one of their websites. But I believe it's this is run by a gentleman named Preston Sprinkle, who has some great resources and books out there, if you haven't heard of his name yet. Uh, he wrote a book called, uh, I'm blanking on it. I wonder if I have Embody. There it is on the far right there. Um, so Pure Desires Ministries, Pure Desire Ministries. Um, also, there's a six-week series that Bridgetown Church did up in Portland back in 2019. It's some of the most just condensed resources from a pastoral standpoint on sexuality that I have found. Uh, the first session was done by John Mark Comer. The, the next five were done by Pastor John Tyson, uh, who's, at, who's out of New York City. His session on week three on homosexuality, if that's of particular interest to you, he uh, buckle up. It's like 70 minutes of just uh, a ton of information. He is a scholar and a pastor. He's a functional pastor, so he is working with people who are in these struggles and journeys. Um, it is done with a very pastoral tone, but he also looks at the uh, the historical rise of kind of the homosexual movement, but then also all of the the um, the debates around the text, you know, the interpretations of scripture. What does the Bible actually have to say about homosexuality? There's so much there. We won't be able to go as deep as he goes in this course, but I want you to know that that's available. You can just Google that um, series and pull that up. I highly recommend it. I also uh, valued it so much. I outlined each of those sessions. So if you want the outlines and all the dates and the scholars that he cites and everything else, I can get that to you as well. And then here's just a handful of books that have informed where I'm coming from in terms of the content. So Carl Truman, um, he is at Grove City College. He's an Oxford uh, scholar. He wrote a book called, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on it's not just Strange New World. Um, I'm blanking. Ruben, we've talked about it. Uh, I, I can't get the other book, Coddling in the American Mind, out of my mind. Anyway, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty dense work. He wrote a shorter work called Strange New World, which is what I have here. So if you kind of want the Cliff, Cliff Notes version, you can read Strange New World. And he does just kind of like, a, how did we get to where we are? How does the phrase, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, how is that not even, not just intelligible, but like a moral imperative today? Like, how did we get here? That would be incomprehensible to our parents and grandparents. So, um, so he kind of tracks the rise from the 1600s to the present. 
uh, and it's a very thorough but accessible work. And then a few other works there. Sam Alberry on is on on homosexuality again, uh, from somebody who's a pastor but who has struggled with homosexuality in the past. And then two books on gender. One, whoops, one from a female perspective, Abigail Favali. The other from a male perspective, Preston Sprinkle. Both highly, highly recommended. Uh, Abigail Favali, I, I joke that she is my favorite Catholic feminist um, because she's the only Catholic feminist that I know. Uh, but she has an incredible story. Uh, those two words might be off-putting for some of you, uh, but she is very orthodox in her beliefs and is uh, comes from a kind of liberal, secular background before she had a radical conversion to Catholicism and just has a beautiful perspective on Genesis 1 through 3. So, uh, so just, just wanted to give you some additional resources for those of you who like to poke a little deeper. Um, there, There's some great stuff out there, and I could, if this is like, your jam, I have lots more where that came from, but didn't want to overwhelm you right off the bat. Um, okay, and a couple of goals, you know, because and, and I want to pray here in just a moment. Come on in, Doug. Uh, I want to pray here in just a moment because there's a lot of ways we could approach this topic. Um, we could approach this from kind of an intellectual academic standpoint. We could approach this from a pastoral standpoint. Uh, but I acknowledge that there's a lot of pain associated with sexuality. It touches, it touches us at a deep level at our most intimate relationships. Um, and so hopefully the tone of this course is there's a lot of, of uh, gentleness and awareness of the pain that can accompany that. Uh, at the same time, we are going to dive into some topics uh, in a way that I hope doesn't seem callous, but just to cover the content that we need to cover, uh, we're going to have to go a little faster than we would if we were going to zero in on any one of these specifically. I hope that makes sense. Uh, but I hope here in my, my heart that um, there is a lot of pain and confusion. These are very complex issues. Uh, I am presenting to you a point of view, and you don't, you don't have to accept it, of course. In fact, I would hope that you'd push back. Feel free to ask questions and challenge viewpoints. I think that dialogical process makes us all better as we seek after truth together. Um, and I'm, I am male, uh, and I'm 40 years old, so I'm not a 70-year-old woman. I'm not a 23-year-old male. I am married. I haven't lived a life of singleness. So I have a limited perspective just based on who I am. Um, so please take, you know, take that into consideration. So as we talk about gender issues and you're female and I'm talking about what it means to be a woman, uh, just know I'm, I'm giving you my best based on the study and the dialogue and the conversation that I have had. Uh, but I have a limited perspective based on just how God uh, made me in the context, and the environment that I've been in. Um, so that's where your input, your comments and your dialogue will be very much appreciated. Um, yeah, so a couple of goals here, and then we're going to pray together. Um, the goal is not to win arguments, uh, or to kind of put somebody in their place. The reason that we are looking at this topic more in depth in this context is for our own spiritual formation. So how can we be conformed to the image of Jesus? And our sexuality is a big part of that. So what does it look like to steward our sexuality in such a way as to, to reflect and model 
Jesus himself, uh, but then also to be empowered to love and speak truth to a very confused and broken generation. So what does that look like? And I think that's probably foremost in a lot of our minds. We have coworkers, nieces, nephews, friends who are living gay lifestyles or wrestling with gender dysphoria who have come out as the opposite gender or and there's a there's a widespread acceptance of that not just culturally but even among the church so how do we navigate that what does it look like to be gracious and loving and accepting and yet uh full of truth and uh and embodying the way of jesus so um that's what we we want to get to we want to become a healer um, in the midst of the brokenness. Any questions? That's just a big setup for where we're going over the next six weeks. Any questions before we dive in? All right. Well, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll just dive in. Father, we come humbly to you, We submit this time to you in the midst of all the busyness of schedules and lives and work and bills and everything else. Lord, thank you for this brief moment that we can carve out time to learn about something that is near and dear to your heart. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move. Um, If you don't translate this to our hearts and minds, we are wasting our time. So would you empower us to be conformed to the image of Jesus? Would you equip us to be your hands and feet, to be emissaries of grace and truth in this cultural cultural hour? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, tonight's probably one of my favorite sessions just because it is diving into what does the text actually say? Where do we get kind of the foundation for how we think about sexuality. What is God's creational intent about sexuality? And the content here, I wish we could do all six weeks just on Genesis 1 through 3. It is so, so rich. Um, uh, If you want a deeper dive, again, Abigail Favalli's book, The Genesis of Gender, is a great work on Genesis 1 through 3. uh, And so many revelations there that just make you pause and want to worship um, for the the beauty of who God is. So um, why I start here is a lot of times in the church, the message about sexuality is generally what? Anybody want to volunteer? What is the church's message about sexuality for the most part? And I'm talking very generally here. Uh, when the church talks about sex, what do we like to say about it? Not rhetorical. Right. Okay, so don't do it, but no guidelines. Okay, what else? Until you're married. Until you're married, right? Okay, so there is, there is a context. There is some goodness to it. It's between a man and a woman. Great. But I want to run with Terry's observation. Generally, there is a no message around sexuality in the church. Uh, there is a redemptive side of it of, yes, it is for marriage between a man and a woman. But other than that, if you're single your whole life or if you have these kind of homosexual leanings or what do you do with with sex and sexuality? It's just like, a, well, I just guess that's not for me. It's a no message. There's uh, there are only boundaries around it. But why? Why? 
why are there so many boundaries, prohibitions around sexuality? And that's where I want to kind of jump into. I want to argue today that the Bible has a resoundingly beautiful, um, positive yes message around sex and sexuality. And it's because of that that there are so many prohibitions and so many boundaries because of the value that God has placed on our sexuality. All right, so um, you don't have to turn there, but we are going to spend the majority of the time in Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, in the first, you know what? Uh, don't look at your slide. I want to see uh, who, who can help me out here just by uh, from memory. Uh, but in the first 25 verses of Genesis, you have the six days of creation. On day one, what was created? Okay, light. Yep, yep, the heavens and the earth. I know, it was just up there. On day two, what was created? The waters and the skies. On day three, what was created? Laura just has a photographic memory. Land and sea, right. So um, we'll just put it back up there since I cheated and uh, or went too far ahead. Um, and not just were these things created, but there's an, there's an interesting pattern in Genesis uh, 1, uh, kind of the first 25 verses, that God doesn't just create, but he separates in verses one through th- uh, in uh, days 1 through 3. So he creates the heavens and the earth, but then he separates light and dark. Uh, he creates the, the waters above and the waters below, and he separates those to create sky in between. And there's a ton of kind of cosmology, ancient Hebrew cosmology we don't have time to get into here. Um, day three, he creates the land and he separates the land from the seas. All right. Now, correspondingly, days four, five, and six are to fill what he created on days one, two, and three. I don't know if you've ever picked up on that before. I hadn't until I heard somebody teach on this. So he creates, he separates light and dark, creates the heavens and the earth on day one. On day four, he fills what he has separated with the sun, moon, and stars. On day two, uh, he separates the waters and the skies. And in day five, he fills the waters and the skies with fish and birds. On day three, he separates the land and the seas. And uh, on day six, he fills that with animals and ultimately humans. Okay, so you guys tracking with me? So there's uh, a pattern, a creational pattern of separation and then filling for fruitfulness. Separation, filling for fruitfulness. All right, we get to Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and verse 31. And I'll go ahead and read this passage. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is one of the most important passages, in my opinion, of Genesis 1 and 2, where a lot of, if you just kind of go back to origins, beginnings, a lot of God's creational intent is embedded in these three verses. And I want to pull out a couple things out of these three verses. One is this first person plural that's used here. And scholars have tried to argue it away, but, um, but it's there in the text. Let us make man in our image. And this is an early echoing of the idea of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is a hugely foundational doctrine when it comes to our sexuality, and I'll explain why as we go. 
the God is a diversity within himself. He is three in one. And the Christian Orthodox belief is that God had existed in himself from eternity past before he created the heavens and the earth and mankind in perfect unity within the diversity of himself. And our language breaks down because we can't conceive of a God who is both three and one simultaneously, but that's the teaching of the scripture uh, and the church has wrestled with that, how we articulate that for 2000 years now. Um, Secondly, he says, let us make man in our image. And that word image in the Hebrew is selim, um, T-S-E-L-E-M, so it's transliterated. And it just means an invis- a visible represent- representation of an invisible deity, a visible representation of an invisible deity. It's uh, actually translated with a different word throughout the rest of the uh, New Testament, any, or Old Testament. Anybody want to take a stab at uh, what a visible representation of an invisible deity would be called, another I word, an idol, right? So often this word is translated idol throughout the Old Testament in a negative way, but here God has made idols, images of himself in mankind, and specifically men and women, male and female, created equally in the image of God to represent what he is like to the rest of creation. Okay, so right here in these three verses, both are made in the image of God. Both are blessed. If I had that on a slide. Both are made in the image of God. Both are blessed. Both are given dominion. And that word dominion might trip us up, but um, we find out what God means by dominion in chapter two, and we'll get there in a second, when he puts them in the garden to do what? To rule over it. In what way? to burn it and pillage it and strip it of its resources, take care of it, right? To be a gardener. And uh, any gardeners in here, right? So Monique, the, gr- the goal of a gardener is what? Fruit. Produce fruit. Or what if you're just growing flowers? Beauty, right? So the goal of a gardener is to tend to something in order to maximize fruitfulness and beauty. And that's the kind of dominion that God envisioned when he put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them dominion over the whole earth. Why do they have dominion? Not to rape the land and pillage the land for themselves, but to exercise dominion over it. And if you've uh, ever gardened before, it takes a measure of dominion uh, over the weeds and the chaos and to bring order and life and beauty out of it. And so both, though, are blessed. Both are given dominion. Another way of saying that is both have agency. Uh, Both have an ability to exercise their will within the context of God's creation. All right. So both are made in the image of God. Both men and women are blessed. Both are given dominion. We also find in uh, in these three verses that mankind is made for four relationships. Um, The first is union with God. It's part of why we're made in his image. Mankind is exceptional. We're unique among all of God's creation, according to the scriptures, uh, that we can uh, commune with God in a way that's unique from like a starfish or a pony or a sea sponge or an amoeba. We can have fellowship with God because we're made in his likeness. We are not exactly like God. There are attributes of God we don't possess, but we possess enough similar attributes, our ability to emote, to communicate, to constrain our 
creative impulses, our passions, and so on, that we can have meaningful fellowship with God. So we're created for union with God. We're created for union with ourself. We were made to be a unity um, within ourselves. The Bible word that's used often is integrity, uh, means um, wholeness. So when it says to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are not to be fragmented where one part of us worships God, but another part of us is sleeping with prostitutes. And one part of us shows up to church on Sunday and, and puts on a front while another part of us is laundering money. Or You get the point. Uh, we're to be unified within ourselves because we're made in God's image and he is a unity within, him, within himself. He is consistent in his person. Uh, we also find we're made for union with others. It's, it's male and female. God did not just create one human, but he created a multitude of humans and blessed them to make more humans. So we're, we are fundamentally created for relationship with one another. In fact, I would argue we're not fully human when we're in isolation from ourselves. Because again, God is three in one. He is a unity in diversity. So we fundamentally need one another. And then harmony with the created order. So again, there is a dominion to be exercised, not to usurp, but to bring about uh, beauty and fruitfulness. Okay, and then lastly from Genesis uh, 1 in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. So Adam and Eve... Both made in the image of God, both blessed, both given dominion, and God pronounces both male and female are very good right there in Genesis 1. But then we get another angle in Genesis 2. You guys good so far? Stop me at any point because it's a small enough group and we can dialogue about any of this if you have a question or a thought or an opposing viewpoint. Um, And we will pause periodically and talk amongst ourselves. Uh, Okay, so in Genesis 2, we're going to fast forward to verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. A very confusing verse translated to English. Um, Interestingly, Adam was with God. And here God says, It's not good for the man to be alone. Now, previously, before doing this study, I had thought that that meant that, that Adam needed human companionship. And I think that's part of it. Uh, but within the, the vision that God has for humanity being made in his image, I think part of what God is saying here is that Adam alone is incomplete to image God in the world. It takes male and female. It's not good for man to be alone, for just Adam to exist, because there's an impartial or an incomplete uh, or a partial or an incomplete image of God that's displayed in the world. It takes, it takes both male and and female. So he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now that word helper conjures up, it's a terrible translation in my opinion. It conjures up this idea of like a servant, somebody who is um, uh, lesser than um, the, the male. The language does not convey that at all. That word in Hebrew is, is ezer or azer. And uh, it's used 21 times in the Old Testament. 17 of those uses are described God himself. He is our Azer. And that word is best, I think, uh, translated deliverer. Deliverer. So uh, you could argue that the translation could read, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a deliverer fit for him. Now, why would Eve be described as the deliverer? 
What's that? Children, right? Very practically, God has given mankind a mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. Adam can't do that alone. He can't fulfill the call of God on his life without a deliverer, somebody to complement him co-equally to be able to fulfill the call of God on his life. And we'll find actually throughout the scriptures, there are more than uh, even more spiritual implications for that as well. Uh, besides just the practical one of procreation. But that, I think, is probably the closest uh, interpretation as to what God means here, that I will make a helper, a deliverer. (coughs) Pardon me, because you remember, he brings all the animals to Adam, and there's not a helper fit for him uh, in the animals. One has to come from his body who is like him to fulfill his purpose. All right, so... Genesis 2, 21 through 25, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib or the side is a better translation there in the Hebrew. The side of Adam that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this at last, not the cow, not the dog, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Again, similar to the Trinity uh, of, of a similar essence, a unity in diversity. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's a lot here, but just a couple things to pull out. Now, this is where we pick back up the creational pattern from Genesis 1. What was that pattern again? Creates, separates, and then what? Fills with fruitfulness. Right, yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, so he creates something, he separates it, and then he fills it with fruitfulness. So what does he do here? He creates Adam and then does what with Adam? Takes her about, or the S word, separates. He separates Adam into two, and in order to do what? To be fruitful and multiply, to fill Uh, specifically Eve, with fruitfulness in order that life may abound in the world. So he's still following this creational intent. Now, there's some interesting scholarship here in Genesis 2 that I've read where there's a debate around Adam before he is separated. the probably the leading opinion amongst most scholars and even a lot of the patristic writers from the first four centuries of the church is that Adam was, was not distinctly male before he was separated into male and female. And there's actually the word Adam in Hebrew that's used um, up until verse 18 when it talks about the man, Adam, Adam, which uh, in most other cases means human or mankind, incorporating both male and female. But here in verse uh, 18, sorry, in verse uh, 23, uh, he says, Then the man, Adam, said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. And this is the first time we see the word Ish come on the scene which means male, like man. You don't see that previous to this event. Uh, Isha, meaning female. Okay, so the one has become two co-equal beings in this passage, but with distinct sexual differentiation. And that's where that Hebrew wording is very important, that you have these two words put in contrast to one another, 
um, displaying this biological sexual differentiation. But the differentiation is the key for mankind's fulfilling its purpose, this initial commissioning from God in the earth, to fill the earth with his glory. A couple of other thoughts here, and then we'll take a breath. Uh, it says that they were one flesh. Um, so they, God creates, he separates, and in order to fill with fruitfulness, they are brought back together and called one flesh. And this is a mystery Paul would talk about in Ephesians 5. He says about husbands and wives, this is a mystery, but what I'm referring to is Christ in the church. But right here, the mystery in Genesis 1 and 2 is that this separation, this distinction, this differentiation brought back into unity, again, images God himself as a Trinitarian God, that he is a unity in himself, even among the diversity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. There is differentiation among the members of the Trinity, yet they are one, and mankind is meant to image this uh, in this institution of marriage in Adam and Eve being separated and brought back together as one. That's a high, high uh, calling for um, sexuality, specifically in the context of marriage. And I know we'll talk about uh, the Bible continues to progress in its unveiling of the, the purpose of our sexuality, even outside of marriage. But that's right there embedded in Genesis chapter 2. And then lastly, verse 25, they were naked and unashamed. They were fully known and fully accepted. No hiddenness, no shame, no hiding. They were fully, they were naked physically. They were naked emotionally. They were naked spiritually. They were fully known, fully accepted. This is the greatest desire of mankind to be fully known by God and accepted by God and to be fully known by others and accepted as we are. Naked emotionally, no secrets, no hiddenness. Um, in fact, I don't know if I, no, I don't have it in here, but I have uh, Jimmy actually, or where was I? Carl, I was at the family camp. There's a, uh, a quad, four quadrants where it, it says, um, on one side, it says known and unknown, and at the top, it says accepted and unaccepted. And that quadrant that intersects known and accepted is mankind's greatest need. That's what it means to be loved unconditionally. Known and not accepted is our greatest fear, where we make ourselves vulnerable to somebody and they see who we really are and then reject us. That rejection is mankind's greatest fear, I would argue and the cause of our greatest emotional and relational pains. Uh, for somebody who is accepted and not known, that just means we're popular, uh, but you know that uh, imposter syndrome, if they really knew who I was, they wouldn't accept me. And then somebody who's not known and not accepted, that's just a stranger. We're, we're all familiar with that, um, that phenomenon. Okay, that's a flyover of Genesis 1 and 2 that we're going to continue to build on. That's a, there's a lot of foundation there, but let me just take a breath here and pause. Any reflections so far or questions about anything we've gone over? Terry? Yeah, the question, just for the recording, um, some of the commentary around the original language is that it wasn't just a rib, but Adam was literally split in two. And I, I think 
I think the the truth in the text is somewhere in between the two. The the word that's used there, and I can't remember the exact word. If anybody knows, feel free to chime in in Hebrew. But it's the word um, that's used. It's just a word that's that means like the side of something, and it most commonly comes up in the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. The walls of the tabernacle are are this word, and so it's like it's like God took the side. Uh, it's like a side of beef. Like he <laughs> took the side off of. Adam, but it is interesting to note, and Abigail Favali notes this in her book, that it most commonly comes up in the construction of a holy vessel, like a holy dwelling place. Um, that word for side or rib, um, like in the construction of the tabernacle or the temple, that Eve was constructed out of something holy, that she was to be a holy dwelling place of God. Uh, but yeah, so I don't know. If, I don't know if it's in the text there. If you could make a case that it was like fully split down the middle, but there is like this separation, this removal. But it does follow the creational pattern of separation and filling. Yes, ma'am. Androgynous, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's an interesting observation, and we'll actually come back to that in week three. And the only thing I would say to that now is it's debatable for one um, whether you could argue that that Adam was distinctly male or not. But let's say he was; he embodied both genders in some way. Um, it was not good that he was alone in that in that way. That God had to separate him into distinctly male and distinctly female in order to fulfill his creational intent. So that's where I think I would pivot on, on that argument. Um, literally, it was the only thing that was not good before the fall. Could it also be that he was too good? Is it too much of a, of a Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's an interesting angle. Right? Yeah, yeah. That he was there was too much goodness in him to embody both sexes, um, and I don't know that that's a that'd be an interesting meditation. I think what's most evident in the text is that uh, in order for mankind to fulfill his purpose, there it needed he needed to become a unity in diversity. There needed to be more than one because God is more than one in himself. He is a trinity in himself. And so I think that was the problem, maybe over, over and against Adam becoming an idol in himself. But that's an, interesting, that's an interesting thing to ponder. I hadn't thought of it that way before. I like that. Anybody else? Yeah, Reuben. Um, so when God is talking about making man in his own image, um, I just heard this the other day, a Christian making this point of saying that it only says that about man or Adam, I guess, being made in God's image. It doesn't specifically say that females are also made in his image, because I guess in verse 26 it talks about let us make man or Adam, however you want to translate that after our engine 27 it says so God created man in his own image. I heard this Christian guy who said that because of that, none of us are made in God's image anymore. Yeah, I think you'd have to do some interpretive gymnastics to 
to arrive there. I could I can see the argument. Let me just let me pull up. I can't remember what the words for male and female are there in verse twenty six. Um, in our image after our likeness, man, sweet man. It's verse twenty-seven. Man, the Adam in his own image, in the image of God, male Zakhar and female Ngepa. Yeah, I'd have to dig a little deeper. I think. Um, for the Adam to be created in the image of God and then to be separated into Ish and Isha, um, at a minimum that makes them co-equal and it's not male that's made in the image of God and female that's not. Uh, and I'd have to do a little bit more of a word study because I think there's a consistent theme throughout the scriptures of mankind being the image of God, Jesus needing to be incarnated, Hebrews 1, 3, to become the exact representation, which is some of that similar language, to become the image of God in the earth. Um, uh, so I don't. I'd have to. I'd have to do a little more thinking on that. Yeah, I think his point, sorry, uh, yeah, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just think the whole kind of creational pattern here of being given dominion to fill the earth and subdue it as a reflection of his glory. And that, that, that commissioning being given to male and female, um, as the image of God, the, the reflection of God, uh, even if it doesn't say it explicitly, I think it's implied in a lot of the text, but I'd have to think more on it. Um, let's move forward just a little bit here and look at some definitions. Now these are a mashup. These are my definitions based on the studies that I've done. So you do not have to uh, accept these. Uh, these are not like, uh, in fact, you know, there's, there's some funny videos out on the internet of, uh, I won't even name the, the documentary because I don't endorse the documentary, but somebody going around and asking people on the street, what is a woman? Um, and, you know, he went to all these protests, these uh, kind of feminist protests. He's like, hey, can I just ask, what is a woman? And you get these kind of blank deer in the headlight stares in response where people can't define what is a woman, even these, you know, kind of diehard feminists or these kind of diehard, um, you know, macho men, what is a man? What does it mean to be a man? And in our culture, you get, I bet if we went across the room, maybe 20 of us in here, we would get 20 different definitions. If we try to define maleness, femaleness, uh, what does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? So here's my attempt just based on creational intent in Genesis 1 and 2. This is a, uh, a working theory. So next time I do this class, the word, wordage might be um, uh, adapted just a little bit, but here's what I'm working with so far. A male is one whose body is organized in such a way as to have the potential to initiate life outside the self. And every word is, is carefully chosen there. One whose body... So we're going to define maleness and femaleness primarily biologically in this class, because that's what we see here in the text. We do not see anything regarding psychology yet, or even cultural um, assignment of roles and expectations. The only differenti differentiation we see so far in Genesis 1 and 2 is that of bodily distinction. Now, of course, part of that bodily distinction has to do with 
bearing and nurturing children, or not even nurturing, but um, feeding children with the body, the female body, and all kinds of social expectations are going to form around that. But even before that, we see that Adam has the potential, the male has the potential to initiate life outside of the self based on the biology. Um, and I use that word potential because not every male is going to initiate life outside the body. Uh, they could be three years old. They could be 93 years old. They could have um, some biological uh, uh, issue where they're not able, even within the prime of life, to, uh, to procreate and to initiate life outside the self. Yet, the body still has the potential. It's organized in such a way, biologically, and we'll come back to this, especially in week three, to initiate life outside the self. Female, on the other hand, is one whose body, not mind, not soul, not spirit, but body is organized in such a way as to, as to have the potential, again, not every female will gestate life within the self, but the body is nevertheless still organized in such a way as to have the potential to gestate life within the self. Okay, some pretty basic definitions so far. You guys tracking with me? All right. So masculinity or maleness, masculinity is actually not a concept that emerges in scripture. It's a cultural concept. But maleness, I would argue, is analogous to God or images God because God endows life from himself but stands apart from it. This reveals God's transcendence. Now, we're getting into some kind of deep theological waters here that we're not going to be able to fully parse out. But the idea here is that God is the initiator of life right? Um, he speaks and it happens. He has a thought and it comes into being. And he created mankind to initiate life outside of the self in a way that is distinct from it. So we don't, males don't gestate life within the self. Uh, and, and I hope we can be mature adults here, but male, the man plants the seed in the woman and then doesn't have to nurture that seed into life. Um, there is a transcendence and a, a distinctness, a separateness from the gestation of that life. And that actually uh, images God as the transcendent one who stands outside of time and space, initiates life, but is distinct from it. Is that making sense so far? I know it starts to get, it's, it can, can spin the mind. Um, femaleness, on the other hand, femininity, is analogous to God as well because God sustains life and is present among mankind, this reveals God's imminence. So the imminence is the idea that God is with us, that God is approachable, that God is knowable, that God is not just the initiator of life, but also the one who brings that life to fruition inside of us by the Holy Spirit. So in a sense, male and female image two sides of the same coin of God's transcendence and God's imminence. And it takes both male and female in order to get that full picture of what God is like. And if those words throw you transcend tra transcendence and imminence, just know that the idea here is that male and female give a full picture of who God is. All right, and then sexual distinction then is that male and female is a sexual binary based on five key biological differences that we'll enumerate in week three those five key biological distinctions, not psychological, not spiritual or soulish, but biological differences. Okay, and then we'll talk about some implications, and then we'll look at where everything went wrong in Genesis 3, and then leave the rest of the time to have 
a bit of a conversation around this. All right, so here's some implications that I draw from Genesis 1 and 2. Male and female have co-equal value. Now, we live in an era that I think we're more accepting of that notion than any era um, in, in our that has passed before us, but that is that is not historically been the viewpoint of most of mankind. Uh, most of mankind has had the viewpoint that male is distinctly superior, even at a biological or mental intellectual level. Uh, you can read some pretty astonishing writings from fairly recent history from very well-respected uh, names and find that this was the commonly held viewpoint. It's really only in probably the last 100 years and really the last 50 years that it's become more socially acceptable, this notion of male and female equality. And that actually came from believers. That does not arise from secular society. Uh, but male and female have co-equal value. Again, both created in the image of God, both blessed and given dominion, both pronounced very good. Secondly, sexual distinction displays God's nature. We display his transcendence and his imminence. Um, when male and female are working together the way God designed, we, we display God's unity in diversity. Or another way to say that is we are a balance of sameness and difference uh, that, is, that is similar that the, the Trinity uh, possesses that leads to fruitfulness. So we are both human. My wife and I are both human. Yet there is a distinction among us that is very important because that leads to fruitfulness. And by extension, there is distinction among male and female in general uh, in the body of Christ that when we part partner together leads to a, dis a different kind of fruitfulness besides just biological fruitfulness. Uh, and again, all this stuff, we're just laying a foundation. We're going to talk about all this in more depth. All right. Um, we also display God's nature in that we display his desired relationship with humanity. Uh, God's power lies in his ability to initiate life. Humanity's power lies in our ability to receive and incubate life. So we do nothing. Even Jesus modeled this, John 5, 19. I do nothing except what I see the Father doing. Um, so the posture of the church is one of receiving as believers. God, you speak, I obey. You initiate, I respond. And you even see this in male and female, uh, sexually, where the male initiates in the sense of planting the seed, uh, the female receives and incubates that to produce life. And this is an image of Christ in the church, um, as he is the initiator and the church is the, res the, the responsive ones. All right, so there's a lot of depth to uh, this notion that sexual distinction displays God's nature, and there's more even than that. Uh, but we'll, we'll kind of cap it there. And then lastly, the sexed body or our sexual our, our uh, sexuality is a good thing. I think there's a lot of rhetoric today uh, that it's a bad thing. Um, and uh, the, another lady, Nancy Piercy, wrote a book called Love Thy Body. And she makes the case that, that uh, Christians have gotten a bad rap, that we're the no club. But actually, um, if you look at in secular culture, from abortion to transgender surgeries, like the abuse of the body in secular culture is, is way over and above the value that Christians place on the body. Uh, we get that from scripture. The body is a good thing. Our sexuality is a good thing. You see that the body reveals truth with Adam and Eve. Eve hasn't even opened her mouth yet, but Adam just looks at her. He's like, you are different from me. 
Um, you are a woman, you were taken out of man, but you are Isha, you are not Ish, you, we are distinctly different. She didn't have to say, I identify as female, I don't mean that tongue in cheek. He knew nothing of her psychology, he knew nothing of her place and culture. Her body alone displayed the truth of who she was uh, uh, in, in the garden. Uh, the body necessitates communion in order to procreate, right? As soon as they are separated, they are brought back together to demonstrate unity, but in, the, in a way of reciprocity. Remember, both were given agency. Both were given dominion. Uh, Eve, and I don't mean this in a crass way, but Eve is not just a, a, um, an object, a, um, like a sexual object for Adam. She has the same agency as Adam, and so that invites reciprocity where they have to selflessly give themselves to one another instead of dominate one another. Does that make sense? All right, all that we see in the body. The body is a good thing. All right. Uh, before we look at Genesis three briefly, any any observations or questions there on our definitions and implications? Okay. So we'll, we'll go through Genesis three, and then we're gonna have a little table discussion uh, before we um, address any last questions. You guys, good. I know we're just laying a lot of foundation. This is kind of. Um, if you think of this class like a funnel, we're starting at kind of this, or, or building a building, we're starting, we're laying a foundation, and we're going to get more and more specific and end in week six with like, okay, this is all great, but like my nephew's gay, what do I do about that? <laughs> but really, this, this foundation and where we get these notions as believers is really critical to understand um, so that we can use discernment because it's not, I, I can't give you a playbook on like, my my niece is getting married to a woman. She's invited us to the wedding. What do I do? Do I go or not go? You're going to have to uh, uh, apply biblical truth within the context of a unique situation. Uh, and understanding this background is really critical to use that discern to be able to use that discernment. Does that make sense? Okay. So Genesis three. Where did everything go awry? Right. This beautiful portrait of Adam and Eve. Sorry, I didn't advance those slides, but you saw them on your sheet. All right, so verse 6. The serpent has come on the scene. He has tempted uh, Eve. Did God really say, calling the word of God into question? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be, des to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So right here, I, I would argue that we have the root of, of the problems that we see in the world, and that is uh, Adam and Eve redefining good on their own terms, right? It, was, it seemed good to them. Now, God had already determined what was good. He had pronounced what was good. He had said they were very good. He says, not good for man to be alone. And then he placed a boundary around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're like, well, no, that seems good to me. And they act on their impulse of what seems good to them. And, and here we are today in 2023. Uh, and all you have to do is flick on the news and see that we are still redefining good on our own terms. Um, the root of our problems. We talk about lust, pornography, masturbation, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on and so forth. We are redefining good 
And every culture and every generation is re-redefining good. <laughs> and those redefinitions are happening so fast now, it's head spinning, where what was determined good 30 years ago is no longer good. And probably in the next five years, we'll have another overhaul. Like right now, pedophilia is not good, but I wouldn't be surprised here in the next 10 years if that was now aesthetically socially acceptable or bestiality or any number of sexual perversions that we can't conceive of being socially acceptable today. But our grandparents could not conceive of, of where we are today. And so I have no doubt that we will continue down a path of redefining good on our own terms. All right. Verses 7 through 20. Essentially, we're not going to read it, but you get the result of the fall. And, and basically what happens is all four of those relationships that mankind was created for in Genesis 1 and 2, they're all fractured. Right. So um, our relationship with God is fractured. You see... Right after they sin, God, Jimmy spoke about this on Sunday, but God comes, he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He calls out to Adam and Eve and they hide themselves because of their shame. And we've all experienced that. Um, the relationship with God is fractured. A relationship with ourselves is fractured. Um, it's not as apparent right here in the text, but we see it unravel throughout the rest of scripture. We're unable to see God. We're made in his image. So we're unable to know ourselves rightly. And different parts of us we are, we're employing in different ways. We actually see this a lot when we talk about the distortions in week four. We'll talk about all the disconnections that we're experiencing today. And that is rooted right here in the fall in Genesis 3. Uh, we're disconnecting um, It's like my soul, my emotions from my physicality so I can go hook up with as many people as I want and not think that's going to have an impact on my soul or my emotions. At least that's the thinking among kind of general culture today. But even secular uh, sociology and psychology is finding that that's not the case, that uh, turns out we are meant to be whole beings and that what we do with our bodies actually affects our emotions and our soul and so on. Uh, but we, f we were fractured in the fall. Um, our union with others was fractured. Immediately you see the blame shifting, right? Uh, what Eve does not, or what Adam does not do and God confronts him is he does not say, you're right, it's on me. I should have uh, uh, obeyed you. I should have led my wife and uh, I take full responsibility. Now he says, actually he does kind of a double blame. The woman who you gave me, gave me the fruit and I ate it. Um, Eve then is confronted by God and she does not take responsibility. She shifts the blame to the serpent. And here we are today, still shifting blame and the shame and all the brokenness there. Um, we also see a power imbalance that emerges, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, and then in the created order, we see toil, right? We're meant to live in harmony with the created order, stewarding it for maximum beauty and fruitfulness. But now the land will yield uh, thorns and thistles, and you'll produce the fruit of it through blood, sweat, and tears. All right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yep. So this idea of fulfilling our, our mission, right, of filling the earth and subduing it, of multiplying, now is going to be uh, attended with pain, right? <clears throat> okay, so a few implications here. Um, what was meant to be harmonious, well-ordered, uh, marked by communion, 
this, this, these relationships between man and God, mankind among mankind, is now marked by hiddenness, shame, and brokenness, right? Selfless love, uh, that, that reciprocation where I am selflessly giving myself to my spouse has now become dominion um, or selfish, or sorry, has become selfishness. Or another way of saying that is a dominion of stewardship has become a dominion of oppression, where when God says have dominion over the earth, and that implies this caretaking, gardening, mankind has now turned that into a dominion of oppression, where it's now for my sake and not for its sake. Right, we see that. That's where the word dominion conjures up probably negative images in our minds because that's what we're familiar with. In the 20th century, lots of people had dominion, whether it was Hitler or Pol Pot or Mussolini, but they did it by usurping, by um, by killing, by imprisoning, uh, by limiting other people's agency for their own advancement. But that was not the intention. Um, and then this is just uh, I'm still kind of meditating on this one. This was a, a, a big piece of Abigail Favalli's work. And she noted that if you look back at uh, verses 14 through 19, the only, God only explicitly curses the ground and the serpent. The word uh, curse is associated with the ground and the serpent. He doesn't explicitly curse Adam and Eve. Now he pronounces consequences uh, consequences for the fall, but I think it would be erroneous to call them a curse or at least a, uh, a curse from God himself because it's not explicitly pronounced there. So that raises the question to me, are the consequences that he enumerates, are those prescriptive or descriptive? And that's just kind of a theological puzzle that people like me like to think about. It really has no bearing on where we're going, but, um, is God basically just saying, hey, because you've chosen to redefine good in your own way, here's going to, just so you know, this is where that's going to lead. Or is he saying, I am pronouncing a consequence on you because of your disobedience. And that consequence in verse 16, one of them, besides pain and childbirth, to the woman, he said, I will, yeah, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, some people have incorrectly interpreted this as creational intent. Men throughout the ages have um, misinterpreted or misapplied this verse and say, look, God said right here, I should rule over my spouse. Uh, but no, God is saying this is a consequence of sin. Creational intent was laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and the work of the cross is to undo the effects of sin and restore us to creational intent. But people have uh, misused this verse for centuries. But what does emerge here <clears throat> is that while both the man and the woman suffer consequences, the consequences seem to carry different implications for each sex. There's an imbalance of power that emerges. Um, and just in the natural, men are on the, on the curve, on the bell curve, men are generally stronger than women now. There are strong, men, women who are stronger than men and so on and so forth. But the implication here is that mankind, man, male who is physically stronger in this context is going to use that strength not to serve, not to steward, to bring about beauty and fruitfulness, but to oppress. In our redefinition of good on our own terms, he's saying, be careful now. You're going to still desire your husband, 
but that's going to be thwarted because he's going to use his, his power to oppress you. Therefore, maintaining the balance of creation will depend, and this is a, you can contest this thought, but I, I tend to agree with this. The balance of maintaining God's creational intent will depend more heavily on males to use power to serve, um, which is exactly what Jesus models in the Gospels. Now, again, there are women who abuse men and so on and so forth, but we're talking at kind of broad generalities here. There's a general imbalance of power, and it generally is incumbent upon males to use their power, their influence, their strength to serve. Now, the truth is same of women as well, uh, but it seems to fall a little, the scales tip a little bit more to the male to maintain that balance of creational intent. This is where, as I read feminist literature, uh, this is where I, I think feminism uh, hits the nail on the head uh, and sees the imbalance of power that's been appropriated throughout the ages rightly, that something is amiss. But where feminism often gets it wrong is it applies more of the problem as the solution. So let's flip the balance of power and have, you know, and paint men in this uh, depraved light and insert women as those who rule. Um, and I understand the, or I could understand the temptation to do that. Um, I'm reading a book right now. It's a long book series. And in this world, it's a fantasy book. And in this world, uh, women are the dominant um, sex. And it's been interesting for me as a male to read, I'm like 4,000 pages into this book series, 4,000 pages of this world where women are dominant. And it's given me actually kind of in an unexpected way in this fantasy book series, some empathy for like, wow, I could definitely see the temptation. And the same would be true of different races for those who have been subjugated or those who have uh, been at the, the short end of the stick when, when power and influence is involved. Man, I could see the temptation to want to flip the narrative and, uh, and become the one who is dominant and in power. But that is a secular script, not a biblical one. What Jesus does is he models the use of power to serve as a, as a model for the church, um, which we'll uh, get into more as we go. All right, and then last uh, implication here um, that I want to draw out is is to address this idea that, and this is again not not as common in modern times, but in ancient times, this idea of hey, it was Eve's fault. Um, um, there's some interesting passages in the New Testament that are taken out of context where Paul refers to this uh, this order where Eve sinned first, but that's been abused. Where it's this idea that women are weaker. Um, they're weaker morally, they're weaker emotionally. Um, but keep in mind, both Adam and Eve were present to hear the tempter. Both ate the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. Both experienced shame and hid. Both blamed and, uh, and pointed the finger. And both uh, suffered consequences. Um, rather... Rather than seeing women as weaker in this example of Eve eating the fruit first, I would see it as women are influential. Um, and there's an interesting analog between Mary and Eve, where both women are offered something by an angel, Lucifer in uh, Eve's uh, context and uh, Gabriel, right, in Mary's context. Both pondered it. They gestated Remember, there was an, an initiative towards them. They internalized that and then both acted. Both said yes, actually. Eve says yes to eat the fruit. Mary says yes to carry the Christ. 
Uh, one woman basically undoes creation. One woman repairs creation. Whatever the woman does has massive implications for all of humanity is what the text seems to be implying. So rather than thinking of women as weaker, what I see in the text is women are massively influential, uh, influential for fulfilling God's creational intent. All right. So last slide here. Um, in short, if you just kind of glossed over or, you know, your eyes are rolling back in your head because of all the, I don't know, these deep theological meanderings. If you take away anything from today, there is a biblical vision of sexuality that we will build upon. This is not the totality of it, but right here in Genesis 1 and 2, we find that men and women have co-equal value, that sexual distinction is really important and it displays God's nature and it is biological, and the sexual, our sexuality, our sexed body is a good thing. It's a good thing, and it has deep, profound, both theological and practical purpose. All right, so for about uh, 10 minutes here, what I'd like for you to do is as a table, and if it's, if it's too big a group, you can kind of split three and three, but just start to mull over this together. What's your top takeaway from tonight? Uh, look back through the slides. What questions does this elicit? Feel free to even write some questions down. Uh, we'll leave seven or eight minutes for questions tonight. What we don't get to, we'll start next week and, and address some questions. Uh, but just start to chew on this and mull over this. This is a deep meditation that will bear a lot of fruit. If we can kind of get this now and build on this in the weeks to come, uh, it'll be really helpful. All right. So why don't you turn at your table? Um, if you're comfortable just talking as a whole group, go for it. If you need to break up into threes, that's great as well. And I'll pull us back together in seven or eight minutes. Ready, go. All right. Great. So last seven or eight minutes here. Uh, would love to hear, were there any questions that emerged or, um, again, uh, counter viewpoints or things that were really helpful, just um, maybe something was said at your table that would be helpful for everybody to hear? Who's got, who's got a thought or a question? Absorbing the depth at the moment. Yep. Zerkers, your baby is really cute. Holy smokes. What else? What was the thought that maybe you found particularly helpful? Yeah. Yeah. So the definitions were helpful. And again, I'm just repeating stuff for the recording, but, um, yeah. And, and they're, it, they're very simple, uh, really, um, the idea of 
masculinity or, or really what it means to be male, it really just has to do with biology. And what it means to be female has to do with biology. That'll be a, a really foundational concept that is under the gun today uh, that would could get me just tarred and feathered in most settings, certainly academic settings, but most social settings to, to suggest that today. But everybody has to start with a foundation, and that's where, where we'll go next week. We'll look at kind of the different mental maps between Christians and, um, for lack of better terms, secular, uh, secular people, uh, or at least a secular worldview or belief system. Because uh, they lead in two very different directions, and we need to be cognizant as believers, the messages that are influ- influencing us, informing us, that we are not uh, slowly, like the frog being boiled slowly in in, um, in the pot, we are not similarly slowly being discipled by a secular belief system. Yeah, what else? One or two more thoughts. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm glad you brought that up. I failed to mention this, but um, what you'll find in in the scriptures, one interpretive framework is um, Genesis one and two is paralleled by Revelation twenty one and twenty two, and they stand as bookends in the scriptures that frame everything else from Genesis three to Revelation twenty, meaning. There's a lot of complexity when you get into the Old Testament, the treatment of women, God even, you know, appears in the law like he places a higher value on men than women, literally like a monetary value to redeem a male costs more than to redeem a female. And and it gets so confusing in the treatment of women and slavery and and even apparent genocide. And there's so many difficult Old Testament passages. And um, but all those are nested in a context between Genesis one and two and Revelation 21 and 22. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he's presented with some of these moral questions, whether it's divorce or something else, he refers back to creational intent. And we'll, we'll get into this later, but I think it's in Matthew 19 where, you know, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they present him with this question about divorce. And, and he's like, look, Moses permitted divorce because of your hardness of heart, but in the beginning it was not to be so. Um, and he quotes Genesis 2. And in a sense, reframes the law. Like they were following the law that God gave at Sinai. But what Jesus said was that was that was a specific context where God was discipling a nation who was coming out of 400 years of pagan slavery and was working with their cultural reality to move them towards um, godliness in an ancient Near Eastern context. And Jesus is like, listen, you're you're misappropriating what God intended for the Israelites as, uh, as God's intention for all time. But in the beginning, don't you see like male and female were created to be one and the two, uh, becoming one flesh shall not be torn apart. And, and he takes them back to creational intent. And then Genesis or revelation 21 and 22, there's a, actually, there's a fascinating parallel where 
John, uh, probably just in the inspiration of the Spirit, probably unwittingly even, uh, systematically repairs in reverse everything that was broken in Genesis 1 and 2. There's actually, you can just Google it, There's these, there are these graphs that lay side by side, even the literary structure. And what was God's creational intent was recovered in Revelation 21 and 22 at the consummation of Jesus's return. Um, but with uh, human stewardship, it's not just a garden anymore. It's a garden city, the New Jerusalem. Um, so what mankind has been commissioned to do is preserved, and what has been created is uh, is um, seen in the New Jerusalem. But but yeah, that's this idea of starting in Genesis 1 and 2 is really critical to frame out uh, all the complexity that we're going to get into when it comes to matters of sexuality. All right. Well, that takes us to 730. Uh, Brandon, since you had the last word, why don't you pray? Pray for us. Great. Amen. Amen. Let this, uh, you guys will sleep a few times between now and next week. So we will have a few minutes to reflect on this again, but maybe pull out some of these scriptures in your time with the Lord, reflect on it, use this as some meditative material. Whether you do or don't, we will reflect uh, at the beginning of next class uh, and dive into a secular theory of sexuality. Bless you guys. Have a great rest of the evening. Thanks for being here.